We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Raphael Mangual. He's out with a new book, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and who it hurts most. Raphael is the Nick O'Neill Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Thank you so much for stopping by Federalist Radio Hour. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about this most recent book. Um, you know, the the subtitle pretty much captures probably for a lot of people what the, the thesis is, what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most. I imagine a lot of this is a response to, in fact, how the left responded to 2020. Um, but uh, tell us, Raphael, why you wanted to write this book and, and what ground it, it really aims to cover. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to write the book in part because of of the sort of post-2020 world we found ourselves living in. But really, I mean, I think a lot of what I responded to in this book is is has much deeper roots than that. You know, for, for the better part of the last decade, the direction of criminal justice policy in the United States is, you know, kind of gone uh, very much to the left. And I think that's a function of the fact that there are certain narratives that have dominated that public debate. Um, and they haven't really been challenged with any vigor. And so what I wanted to do was with this book was interrogate those narratives, explain what they get wrong, um, and, and sort of lay out for people exactly what the downside risk is associated with the decarceration and depolicing project. And I was really motivated to do that post-2020 because I saw a lot of that downside risk coming to pass. And you know the, the, the thing that stood out to me most was that given how concentrated crime really is, this was always going to be um, a risk that was disproportionately born by precisely the communities that reformers say they wanted to help. And so, you know, it, it's not necessarily that what I'm responding to is is a sort of post-2020 phenomenon. I mean, you can go back and read like James Q. Wilson's 1975 book, Thinking About Crime, and he's responding to a lot of the same uh, arguments that that are still dominating the left's sort of uh, approach to criminal justice policy today. Um, but what we did see post-2020 was a rapid acceleration of even fringe ideas into the mainstream. And we saw just state after state, city after city uh, enacting increasingly more far-reaching reforms. Uh, and, and you know, that was not going to be a cost-free endeavor as I saw it. And so what I wanted to do was just sort of lay out what those costs are and explain how they're actually going to hurt precisely the communities that um, uh, reformers, who I think are well-meaning, um, say they want to help. Yeah, a lot of communities in this country are perfectly safe, but even in rural areas and urban areas, both alike, there are surges in certain types of crime all over the country right now that is affecting the day-to-day -day lives of people in those places. And at one point you just made reminds me a lot of the tortured critical race theory discourse, which is um, the roots of it. It's sort of like 2020 was an accelerationist moment that a lot of this was cooking and was sort of inevitably going to become mainstream, it seemed like at some point. Um, but the, the roots of it sort of philosophically, intellectually go back decades. What can you tell us about that and, you know, how 2020 affected or maybe didn't affect whether or not this was sort of going to end up, um, you know, being in mass or, as you just say, like spreading um, pretty quickly. How did that work out? Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, I think the the, the sort of 
intellectual groundwork for this movement had been laid a really long time ago. I mean, again, you can go back to the 1970s and find critiques of mass incarceration, even though our incarceration rate was far lower back then than, than, than what it is now, um, which kind of gives you a hint as to whether or not there's ever going to be a point of satisfaction. Um, yeah, but the criminal justice system has always been kind of the most visible part of the government. And, you know, particularly given our country's uh, checkered history on on race, you, crime and justice has always, I think, been at the forefront of that debate. And, you know, through the mid 1960s and 1970s, I think the criminal justice system became, you know, not uh, uh, irrationally seen as an instrument of uh, America's racism as an instrument of oppression. Um, and I think it, it became seen that way because in some parts of the country and too many parts of the country, that was true. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that that really was, was kind of the, the, the sort of front and center um, critique that, that I think informed the sort of broad skepticism of the criminal justice system uh, that we now see animating policy today. What really changed, I think, um, was sort of the advent of, of social media and citizen journalism, right? I mean, I was a kid in 1991, but I remember all the talk about, you know, uh, the beating of Rodney King and the riots that followed. And, um, you know, what I think made that such a sensational story for America was that it was caught on video. It gave people a chance to viscerally react to something that they only knew sort of intellectually or from their own experiences, but had never been able to sort of share with the masses. And that really changed when everyone got cell phone cameras. That really changed when everyone got a platform on social media through which to share um, these videos and their critiques. And I think that accelerated, um, uh, particularly among uh, people who are already kind of predisposed to be skeptical of uh, enforcement mechanisms. I think that it really accelerated a sense that the criminal justice system needed to be checked. And um, to some degree, I think that that was true. But as we see with a lot of other phenomenon, I mean, we live in a really big country, right? And so we have you know, 330 million people here, even really rare things happen all the time, and can get caught on video. So you can have one really terrible, say, you know, police citizen interaction video for every day of the year. And that will make it seem like this is a much more common phenomenon than it is because those things get shared far and wide um, and it makes us lose sight of the context in which those things happen. Um, and so, you know, all of that was happening leading up to the 2010s. And then you saw, I think, a really emboldened, um, I don't even want to say reform movement because I think it's, it's, it was less focused on reform and more focused on critique. I'm thinking here of like, you know, the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and uh, the documentary 13th, um, you know, th this story really got, I think, hammered home in academia. And then we started to see these social media um, uh, phenomenon, like the trade, uh, you know, things of, like critiques about the Trayvon Martin shooting, the Michael Brown shooting, the Laquan McDonald shooting. Um, and all of these things, I think, really accelerated the sense in which people felt like if they were going to support uh, the movement that claimed to be a movement for justice, if they were going to support um, what they saw as uh, victims of police brutality, then they needed to adhere to this line that had become kind of entrenched on the left. And that was that, you know, the criminal justice system could be fairly characterized as, you know, uh, overly draconian and uh, racially oppressive. And that is, I think, where we found ourselves. And George Floyd was really just the straw that broke the camel's back. And it seems to me 
in the wake of George Floyd's killing, the media did a lot of the bidding um, for advocates, far left advocates and activists who were pushing that level of narrative. Um, and, and so, Raphael, I wanted to ask you, maybe maybe I'm wrong, maybe that's a leading question, but it's in the wrong direction. What have you thought about media's coverage of policing um, and, and the way I think it's probably really affected public policy in the last uh, decade or so? Yeah, well, I think, you know... Uh... I think for legacy media institutions, it's been really easy to just carry forward what the dominant narrative has already been claiming because, you know, all you have to do is point to top level disparities. All you have to do is highlight these, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, stereotype congruent uh, police citizen interactions. And I mean, by stereo, the stereotype here I'm referring to is that, you know, police are just trigger happy Neanderthals and, you know, um, uh, that they that they you know sort of are an occupying force in in poor communities, um, and so it, it was really easy to just carry that forward and keep that momentum going. Uh, what I think the biggest failure of the legacy media uh, has been with respect to its coverage of policing and criminal justice issues writ large is I think a, a data illiteracy or a refusal um, to prioritize data literacy because a lot of these things, while troubling as individual um, uh, instances, are, are not characteristic of the institution. And that becomes clear once you start to contextualize uh, those things in light of the overall volume of police activity. Um, you know, so there's a, a hyper focus on um, fatal police shootings, uh, for example. You know, the lots of media institutions are maintaining databases of these things, giving the impression that this is, you know, uh, the sort of uh, pro public problem on a scale that you know needs a watchdog. And actually. You know, I'm perfectly fine with that. In fact, I find these databases useful. But you can kind of tell, with respect to the tone with which they're they're delivered, that the the sense that they're giving off is that this is, you know, uh, far too common. Um, that this is, you know, a likely outcome of a police citizen interaction, and it's not. Right? I mean, if you just look at, you know, uh, deadly use of police force. I, I in the book I, I do some research looking at 2018 shooting data, and I estimate the police officers in the U.S. fired their weapons a little over 3,000 times that year. Now, in the context of, you know, a 365-day year, 3,000-plus shootings sounds like a lot. But in the context of nearly 700,000 police officers making more than 10.3 million arrests, that then I think starts to uh, help people understand how rare that phenomenon really is. And, you know, the, just you know, for the listeners, that comes out to 0.003% of arrests um, in which deadly force is used. And, you know, it, it doesn't get much better when you look at non-deadly force. I mean, you know, again, there's lots of hyper-focus um, on police citizen interactions where, you know, a cop body slams, you know, a high school student who's resisting arrest or something like that, and that goes viral. And it colors the public sense of what these interactions are typically like, when in reality, less than 1% of arrests or somewhere around 1% of arrests, depending depending on the, the study that you're looking at, uh, actually involve the use of physical force. And the vast majority of those cases in which physical force is used, there's no injury or very mild injury to the suspect. And so you know, there's one study that I talk about in the book that looks at a million calls for service across three police departments in uh, North Carolina, Arizona, and Louisiana. And those calls for service resulted in 114,000 plus criminal arrests. 99 plus percent of those arrests were affected without the use of any force. And in that entire data set, there's just one fatal police shooting. 
So you get a million plus calls for service, more than 114,000 criminal arrests, and there's just one fatal police shooting. And, you know, uh, police are using force in about, you know, 0.3% of, of those arrests. And in 98% of the cases in which force was used in that study, there was either no injury or mild injury to the suspect. So, you know, the, the failure on the part of the media has been to give that contextualizing data to the public so that they can have a more accurate sense of what the scope of the problem is. And again, I'm not saying that there's not a problem, right? I think people misread this book if they read it as a defense of bad policing. I think people misread this book if they read it as a claim that our criminal justice system is perfect and completely efficient and completely equitable. Those are not claims I'm prepared to defend because they're not true. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that the the sort of loudest and harshest critiques are true either. And I think it's really important for us to have a clear sense of, of what the reality is. And I think that starts with being better about how we present the, the relevant data. And, and I don't think the, the legacy media has done a particularly good job of that. Let's shift to decarceration um, and that segment of the book, which is a big part of the book, obviously, as people can tell from the title. Um, but the the even the right, I think, has been when you look at what the Trump administration focused on, it, it's been, I think, fairly open to um, arguments about decarceration. And, you know, the libertarian right has always been very different than uh, the sort of mainstream right on these questions. What If you could just sort of summarize what the problem is with the main arguments arguments about mass decarceration, most of which are, are coming from the left. Um, that would be great. And also another part of that question is, is the right flirting with any sort of dangerous ideas when it comes to decarceration? Yeah, I, I think they have. And I think the right has sort of sensed its own vulnerability on criminal justice issues because they have been so such a, a sort of dominant part of the broader debate about race in America, which you know frankly is 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 not one that the, that the right has fared particularly well in, um, and so this I think has presented itself as an opportunity to the right to sort of um, convey allyship on on an important and, and issue that that means a lot to a lot of Americans, and so it's it's not again it's not completely irrational in my view um uh, for, for the right to flirt with some of these ideas, but I do think they're dangerous. And, and so you know, just to kind of go over some of the, the critiques in this space, you know, there, there's a lot made about the idea that the, the U.S. has too many people incarcerated, right? We often hear this statistic trotted out that the U.S. constitutes about 5% of the world's population, yet accounts for about 25% of its prisoners. Um, and, and we're often unfairly uh, compared to other Western European democracies that have, you know, incarceration rates that are a fraction of what ours are. Um, the problem with this thinking, the problem with this approach is that it fails to account for the, the most important variable that explains why this uh, reality is so, which is not you know, that the United States is particularly punitive when it uh, uh, comes to crime and punishment, but rather that the United States just has a lot more pockets of seriously concentrated crime. Um, that a lot of other parts of the world just don't have, right? I mean, you said it earlier. I mean, the vast majority of the United States is as safe as the safest places in the world. It's just that unlike in a lot of other places in the world, the United States has a lot of pockets of, of crime uh, that, you know, are, are – 
that, that see levels of homicide, for example, that would just blow the mind of a lot of Americans. And just to contextualize that, I mean, in 2019, the national homicide rate was five per 100,000. If you look at just the 10 most dangerous neighborhoods in the city of Chicago, collectively, they had a homicide rate of over 60 per 100,000. Uh, and that actually understates how dangerous some of those neighborhoods were. Like if you look at West Garfield Park that year, it had a, a homicide rate of 131 per 100,000. And so in a country as large as ours, if you have enough of those pockets, that can go a long way toward explaining um, why our incarceration rate is so high. And I do this analysis in, in the book where I compare just a handful of neighborhoods in four American cities um, in uh, Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, uh, 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 and Baltimore. And um, what I find is that those those little chunks of America, which only house about 470,000 people, uh, 0.3% of the population of the combined population of England, Wales, and Germany, they see more than 10% of the homicides of all of those countries. Um, and, and just that, that, that tiny slice. And, and so, you know, it's, again, it's really just a function of our higher crime rate. So that's a huge problem with those kind of international comparisons. The other problem is that, again, if you just look at policy, we're not particularly punitive. Right? In the UK, the mandatory minimum sentence for illegal gun possession is five years. And you're going to serve about three and a half years of that on average. Here in the United States, that offense is regularly met with probation. So we're actually less punitive on, on, on that front. In Germany, you see a higher percentage of um, uh, uh, murder convicts sentenced to life in prison than in the United States, significantly higher. Um, so again, it's not that we're more punitive. It's just that we have a lot more crime, and that's what explains. And, and, and not just more crime generally, because that's actually not true. If you look at the crime rates generally, there are a lot of Western European democracies that rival uh, the crime rate of the U.S. It's that we have a lot more of the crime that is likely to result in a really long uh, prison sentence. We have a lot more homicide, a lot more gun crime. Um, and, and so that's, I think, at the root of it. Um, you know, the, the other part of the critique is that our, our prisons and jails are sort of teeming with low-level nonviolent offenders. You often hear the term nonviolent drug offender um, as if these are static categories, and, and they're not. It's also just not a true critique. If you look at the vast majority of people incarcerated in the United States, particularly in state prisons, which is they account for about nine out of every 10 prisoners in the U.S., um, the vast majority of them are, are incarcerated for serious violent or weapons offenses, more than 60%. Uh, only 14% are incarcerated primarily for a drug offense. And it's important you know, to kind of take a step back and just understand what those statistics mean. When we look at our prison statistics, what we're looking at in terms of offense categories are the categories that people fall into with respect to the charge for which they face the most time. So if you are carrying an illegal firearm and you're found with a, uh, let's say a kilo of cocaine in your trunk, you're going to get more time for the cocaine than you would for the firearm. And so our prison statistics will list you as primarily incarcerated for a drug offense, even though you were also convicted of a firearm offense. Um, so it's important for us to understand what those prison statistics actually mean, which means that a lot of people who are categorized as sort of nonviolent offenders, that may not necessarily fully capture 
the the behavior that they actually engaged in um, that led to their conviction. The other reality is that the vast majority of convictions are are the result of plea bargains in which charges are dropped or uh, downgraded. And so, you know, the conduct that someone is convicted of often understates the conduct that they actually engaged in. And then, of course, criminals don't specialize, right? So, the person who's incarcerated today for a quote unquote nonviolent offense, um, it's not true necessarily that they are a nonviolent offender, which is to say that they often have violent histories and will often go on to commit um, more violent crimes. Uh, you know, uh, so there's this idea that, you know, there, there's this large subpopulation of people incarcerated in the U.S. that we can essentially release without consequence, right? I mean, that's just the logical um, corollary of the mass incarceration critique. If if we have a mass incarceration problem, then the solution, by the very logic of how that problem is framed, is to mass to, is to decarcerate on mass. And so the question that I ask in the book is like, well, the the best way to test if we have a mass incarceration problem is to ask the question of whether we can safely decarcerate on mass. And if you just look at the recidivism rates of 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 prisoners in the United States today, what they tell us is that decarcerating more than at the margins is a very risky proposition. So recidivism rates over a 10-year period in the United States hover around 80 to 83%. Um, that's not good. It's, it's not good <laughs> at all. Um, on average, people who are released from state prisons are going to generate about five arrests each over that 10-year period. And that's keeping in mind the fact that the vast majority of crimes don't get reported and the vast majority of crimes that get reported don't get solved. And so, again, those arrests are, are also understating what the scope of, of the recidivism problem actually looks like. And so, you know, we're looking at a very, very small population of people incarcerated today who we can release with full confidence that they're not going to go ahead and, and re-victimize other people. Um, but I think rhetorically, one of my biggest beefs with the the sort of way that the mass uh, decarceration agenda has been set up, it's that it's been a, a product of uh, seeding this idea that the U.S. systematically denies people second chances. Um, and that, that just couldn't be further from the truth. We have second chance month in the United States, right? There's, there's this idea that there's this huge population of people who are just getting railroaded by the system, people who've been arrested, you know, once for uh, having a small amount of marijuana in their pocket and then they're, you know, they're getting 10 years in prison. That's just not true. And the data make this clear. Here is, again, another missed opportunity for the legacy media where I think they could have nipped this in the bud a long time ago. Um, but but if you look at the average person leaving prison in the United States today, they had more than 10 prior arrests and about five prior convictions before they entered prison the most recent time. Right. So that statistic on its own is uh, just, uh, I think, illustrates the incongruity of that sort of uh, a critique that we deny second chances with reality, which is that we often give people many, many second chances. And what I really wanted to do, you know, with the arguments about mass decarceration is to illustrate that for every chance that we give, we are imposing a risk, we're taking a, a, a chance, we are making a bet with the lives of other people, 
right? I mean, if you you look at just stories of the most heinous, you know, crimes, shootings, rapes, um, they're often committed by people who have very extensive criminal histories, who have active criminal justice statuses. And that's that's historically been the case, right? So, I mean, from 1990 to 2002, the Bureau of Justice Statistics did a study finding that more than 36% of all violent felons uh, were either out on probation or parole or pretrial release when they committed the crime that they were convicted of. Um, and, and so that problem has only gotten accelerated as we've lowered the transaction costs of, of crime. But, you know, again, this is not a problem that we're all going to feel equally. Right. Americans often kind of revert to this colloquialism of talking about America's crime problem, America's gun problem, you know, or, or even a city's gun problem or a crime problem. Right. We often hear Chicago so dangerous. It's like I, I understand the the sort of utility of that kind of colloquialism, but it, it, it masks a really important reality, which is that crime is so, 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 so hyper concentrated in any given city in the U.S., somewhere between three and four percent of street segments, which is like corner to corner, both sidewalks are going to see 50 percent of all violent crime. Right. So, you know, again, just going back to Chicago, 10 most dangerous neighborhoods in that city murder rate of 61 per 100,000 uh, right around there. If you take the 28 neighborhoods that had either zero homicides or, or one homicide, you have a much bigger population than those 10 neighborhoods. And yet you have a homicide rate of about one per 100,000. So, you know, again, the this is a problem that is going to be disproportionately borne by the most vulnerable members of our society, people who are living in communities that are already struggling with elevated levels of crime, as well as other social problems. And so, you know, if in fact mass decarceration is meant to be um, a, a way to uh, sort of serve um, racial equity, well, then I think we have to confront the fact that the vast majority of people in prison have violent histories and or violent convictions currently. The vast majority of people in prison are extremely likely to reoffend, And those offenses are extremely likely to be concentrated in places with very, very high populations of minority residents, right? The, the, the 10 most dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago that I mentioned earlier, collectively, they're more than 95% black or Hispanic. In New York City, every single year for which we have data, which goes back to 2008, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims are either black or Hispanic. So again, you know, what I don't, uh, what I wanted people to understand with this book is that the decarceration project is not a cost-free endeavor. It carries with it a lot of risk. That risk is very likely to come to pass, and it's going to be disproportionately placed on the shoulders of people who can least afford to bear it. You just covered an enormous amount of ground, a lot of which I was actually going to ask you about. So that was absolutely perfect. And um, oh, <laughs> on that <laughs> on that note, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, we, we've seen some of these experiments sadly play out. Um, and I guess I wonder also if you see what's happened in San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, to some extent, de Blasio's, former Mayor de Blasio's New York City, um, as, as almost uh, kind of experiments or, or laboratories with some of these really dangerous policies. And what happened, particularly in San Francisco, has gotten a lot of attention. So I wanted to, to ask if you see these as representative experiments um, in how these policies actually hurt the most vulnerable people the most. 
Yeah, I think San Francisco is a little different. Um, and the reason for that is, is because San Francisco has never really had a super serious violent crime problem, um, at least not serious violent crime. Right. The, the, when, I, when I say serious violent crime, I'm, I'm mostly referring to shootings and homicides that that has never been not never, but it has for a long time not been a huge part of San Francisco's public safety problems. Um, what San Francisco has been experiencing over the last several years is a rapid, rapid decay in public order. And one of the reasons I think that the recall effort um, uh, was so successful there, and I'm referring here to the recall of, of the uh, DA Chesa Boudin, um, was because that disorder problem touched the lives of not just the most vulnerable, but also the very well-to-do politically active, right? I mean, there were people walking out of their $6 million houses and watching someone defecate on their lawn. Right. That that became unacceptable. And so I think in places like San Francisco and L.A., where the story is w much more one of a disorder problem in public spaces that um, the well-to-do upper middle class places a high uh, value on, that that there's going there. There's been a lot more political momentum uh, to push back there. But the experiment's a little different in places like say Philadelphia or Chicago or Indianapolis or Louisville, Kentucky, where, you know, what you're risking is much more uh, uh, of a serious violent crime problem of what people would understand to be the, the, the sorts of offenses that carry the highest social costs, shootings, homicides. I mean, these are cities that have, you know, uh, come very close, if not uh, surpassed their, their all-time homicide records in the last couple of years. Uh, Philadelphia broke a homicide record last year, seems on pace to set a new one this year. Indianapolis broke a homicide record uh, last year. Louisville, I think, broke a homicide record in 2020 after setting one uh, in 2016. Um, new York City, uh, I think, is a little different as well because as dangerous as New York City was in the 1990s, people forget we had 2,262 murders in 1990. Mm -hmm. um, we also went down to 292 murders in 2017. Over that period of time, what we saw in New York, which I think was a lesson for a lot of other cities, was this massive expansion in um, investment, a lot more population density building up in the outer boroughs, um, and a lot more buildup in the outer boroughs that I think made the physical environment more resilient to crime increases as a result of shifts in criminal justice policy. So New York City is almost like, I think, a, a bad barometer on this because it is uniquely fortified against crime as compared to a lot of other urban centers around the country where the streets aren't as well lit, where there's not as much traffic density, where there aren't as many CCTV cameras, where uh, the the vehicle traffic density is a lot lower, right? I mean, it's, it's much harder to do a drive-by in a lot of parts of New York City because of how much traffic there is, right? So a lot of, you know, quote-unquote drive-by shootings will be done on like little mini scooters or bikes um, because that's the only way you can get through traffic, whereas, you know, on the south side of Chicago, you can, you know, do a drive-by shooting in a car and, and, and get down a, a thoroughfare pretty quickly without, without getting stuck. Um, and so there are all these, these different factors. Um, you know, we also have a huge police department here with a lot of resources and technology at its disposal. Um, and I think that that makes us probably not the best place to look 
if other cities are trying to answer the question of how far can we go down reform road before things start to fall apart? Um, because I think it's going to take longer for things to fall apart in a place like New York than it would in a place like Louisville. And I think we've seen that. Um, but we're also starting to see things fall apart in New York. But again, that deterioration on the violent crime front is most heavily concentrated right now in the Bronx, particularly the South Bronx, which is, you know, seen a huge chunk of the violent crime uptick with respect to shootings and homicides over the last couple of years. Brooklyn's seen some of that, um, you know, but it, it becomes really easy to ignore that if you're living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where, you know, the biggest change that you've seen is like a few homeless shelters popping up and, and the sort of disorder that's that's associated with that. Um, but I do think that if you pay attention, if you look at the right places, um, broadly speaking, we are seeing the results of this experiment play out. I mean, that's that's my theory of the case. I don't think what we saw in 2020 was just a one-off um, sort of function of, of COVID or you know the economic hit that COVID wrought. I, I think it was the continuation of a trend that probably started right around 2015, which was the first of two consecutive years that the United States saw um, a significant increase in its homicide uh, rate in, in recent times. And um, you know, that uh, I think tells us, you know, a little bit about how much worse we can expect things to get if we don't change course. And a lot of cities are being um, frustratingly um, um, thick headed on this, you know, in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, the progressive DA there, who has presided over crime increases every single year that he's been in office, just sailed to reelection. Um, you know, so so I, I suspect you know, that, that things may not change as quickly as we'd like. So, uh, and, and that's a great, one thing that I, I suspect happens in this policy area. In fact, I know what happens in this policy area is, is, is the, uh, I guess the right and the left being entrenched in their camps, just like every other area. And, and that makes it really impossible to kind of find the nuance and agree on the nuance. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier, you the, the wrong way to interpret this book is to say, everything's okay. <laughs> like, there's no need for, for any different change. Like everything's fine. Everybody relax. Um, so what are, are those areas that you know, where are where is there kind of fertile ground for reform or, or what places should um, people be looking for um, to to actually make changes that are are needed? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a few that I that I lay out in the book, um, particularly in the policing space. I do think there's some opportunity to make some some real improvements at the margin um, with respect to recruitment, with respect to training. Um, these are, are things that are, I think, underinvested in. Right? There's a there's a big critique, you know, uh, of policing and criminal justice writ large that you know we just spend too much on it. This is and that, that I think actually motivated a lot of the rights sort of support for decarceration, a lot of criminal justice reforms. They were framed as you know savings mechanisms, but this, of course, is a core government function where I think we actually should be spending um, more, not less, than what we are now. And so I, I think that recruitment and retention and investments would have a huge payoff in a way that I actually think will also probably reduce things like serious uses of force. And, you know, I think a lot of the, the public that watches a lot of police related TV thinks that, you know, every cop is riding around with a partner. Um, that's not true, right? I think most parts of the country, police officers are riding solo. Um, and that I think makes uh, physical struggles a lot harder um, uh, to 
to win and makes it more likely uh, probably that when officers are by themselves, that more serious uh, force is going to be used with a resisting suspect because they don't have the benefit of, um, you know, someone else uh, on hand or backup being, you know, uh, uh, 60 seconds away like it is in a lot of parts of the city in New York. Um I think they're also, you know, the Breonna Taylor case uh, raised an important debate about no-knock warrants, even though uh, it does not seem to be the case that police actually executed a no-knock warrant in that right. case. They, they do seem to have knocked and announced. Um, but but I do think that there is an opportunity here for reform. I, I'm not an advocate of banning no-knock warrants. I think that, you know, there are certain situations in which that kind of tactical advantage is probably um, uh, something we should preserve. But I do think that police departments can be better about thinking through when those kinds of approaches are appropriate. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that maybe one good idea for reform is designating an executive level officer uh, to actually review all no-knock warrant applications before they go to court for sort of tactical necessity, right? Doing uh, and making sure that that the tactical necessity case is based on actual intelligence. One of the things that's that's frustrating, and I tell a story about this in the book, is is that sometimes you'll see these warrants executed without any real intelligence gathering efforts at the front end. Um, they don't. They they haven't done any any um, you know recon to see who's in the house at that time, where in the house they are. Um, you know, there, there was one case I talk about in the book where police officers are executing a search warrant on this one house. They just break a window, throw a flash grenade in. The flash bang uh, actually lands in a baby's crib mm. and goes off. They had no idea that a baby was in that room. Um, also, it turns out that the person that they were looking for was not in the house. They didn't even, you know, sit on the house to make sure that he was home when they executed the right. Right. Like these are these are things that I think we can do better. And I think that's a function of training and investment. Um, you know, there, there are certainly some other areas on on the pretrial detention front. You know, I, I talk I have a whole chapter on you know bail reform in the book, and it's been a huge part of our national debate. Um, but I do think I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the critique that I think informed a lot of bail reform efforts. I, I do think that heavily relying on monetary conditions on release, i.e. cash bail, um, is not a particularly efficient or equitable way of providing for the public safety in terms of you know, shielding the public from the offenses that pretrial defendants might um, uh, pose. And so you know, the question – for me is like, how do we make that system more efficient and more equitable without throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which is exactly how New York went about this. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't eliminate cash bail entirely, but I would uh, make it very, very rare um, compared to how often it's currently used as um, a mechanism for, for public safety provision. And basically what I, what I pose in the book is that we reorient the pretrial release inquiry around risk. This way, it doesn't matter. You, you, this way, you don't end up with a situation in which you have a kind of rich but dangerous defendant that gets to buy his freedom, whereas a sort of harmless but indigent defendant gets stuck behind bars, right? You can avoid that by reorienting the inquiry around risk as opposed to wealth or access to, to money um, and make it so that people who are dangerous um, and you know that determination is something that, that we can make using algorithmic risk assessment tools, which you know if validated have, have, have proven to be um, very accurate in, in predicting risk, at least 
far more accurate than you know the whims of any one judge uh, or prosecutor. Um, and and so anyone who's who's a high risk gets held in pretrial detention, um, and anyone who's doesn't pose a risk. Um, you know, gets gets released. And I, I think that is a, a much fairer way to do it. And it will allow us to focus our uh, finite resources and finite carceral capacity on the people that are most likely um, uh, to, to reoffend during the pretrial period. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, then, you know, doesn't that just totally eliminate judicial discretion? Uh, I, I say no, um, because I don't think judges should necessarily be bound entirely by what the risk assessment says, because I think there are going to be situations in which diversion uh, in either direction makes sense, right? So let's say you have somebody with a really serious criminal history, and criminal history often carries a lot of weight in algorithmic risk assessments, uh, but they were arrested after a car chase that ended in a fiery crash, and now they're paralyzed, right? Well, that that individual's risk profile may in reality be different than what the, the risk assessment tool is going to say because it's going to rely heavily on history and not going to reflect, you know, that that person's debilitating injury. Um, also, like you may have a domestic violence uh, a defendant who doesn't have a criminal history but seems to be in the middle of a psychotic break due to, you know, a really bad divorce and maybe the context of the most recent um, uh, arrest actually indicates a higher level of risk than what the risk assessment tool um, might say. So I, I, I think there's still very much a place for judicial discretion, but we want that discretion um, to be as informed as possible through something that is as close to objective as we can get. Um, and so those are just, you know, a couple of areas where I think, you know, there there's a possibility for reform. But I also think it's really important for the public to understand that even well-constructed reforms depend very heavily on a human element. They're only going to be as good as the individuals administering those systems, right? So I, during the, the debate about New York's bail reform, I was uh, wrote a few pieces pointing to New Jersey's bail reform as one that was constructed uh, in a much uh, more coherent and and um, logical way. And I praise New Jersey's reform in, in many cases. But I, I think as we've seen over the last couple of years, um, it, it, there was an, a lack of willingness on the part of some prosecutors to pull that lever, which is to say to ask for detention hearings. Um, and there was a, a lack of willingness on the part of some of the judges in that system to actually hold offenders. And so even though you had on paper this really great reform, in practice, um, you know, it wasn't doing what it was meant to do. Uh, and so that's always going to be a challenge. But, you know, the main takeaway, I think, for people is that we have to understand that these that the, that the reforms that I think are the smartest, that the reforms that I think um, you know are, are are that there there exists the most urgent case for, they're not going to radically change outcomes, and that is because you know while I don't think the system is perfect, I do think that it gets a lot right, um, and yeah, that's especially true with policing, right? I mean, again, you know. The, given the rarity of police uses of force and deadly uses of force in particular, this is the source of a lot of the reform debates and a lot of the reform proposals. Well, if that's the case, then there's really not a whole lot of room for improvement there, given how rare this phenomenon already is. Um, and, and so it's really important for people to just understand what the underlying data say about any one thing. Um, you know, I do think that there is some subset of the incarcerated population that doesn't belong 
in jail or prison. And I think they should be identified and released. But that kind of reform, I think, should also be accompanied by an effort to identify the subset of the general population that should be but isn't behind bars. And that, I suspect, is a much larger number. And so, you know, I, I think that there is a likelihood that a more equitable and efficient approach to incarceration decisions may actually lead to an increase in our incarceration rate. Um, but we should be okay with that, I think, because what that means is that these are people who are not going to be on the street you know, to offend and victimize communities in really important ways. You know, uh, just looking at Chicago again, which is, you know, I think a very salient example in the minds of a lot of people who see that city rightly as, you know, um, illustrative of, of how bad things can get on the public safety front. Um, you know, the average uh, shooter or homicide suspect in that city has 12 prior arrests. 20% of them have more than 20 prior arrests. Or what? What I want to do is minimize the the harm that those individuals consistently do um, when the system fails to hold them accountable for the offenses that they've committed. Um, and and yeah, I mean, sometimes that's going to mean um, that the system needs to be harsher than it is. And it also seems to present an opportunity um, to the recidivism rates, a good example, to make our prisons places that are more like will will produce uh, people that are are less likely to uh, reoffend when they're put back out into society. That I mean, that seems like it's it's probably a, a huge area where we can do better as well. I know there are a lot of good programs, um, but the recidivism rate rate in and of itself um, speaks to what more can be done. Actually, when people are incarcerated, yeah, I mean, recidivism is such a huge challenge, and it's one of those things though that I think the public is reluctant to swallow the following reality, which is that we don't know how to reliably reduce recidivism, at least at scale. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't know how to reliably reduce it over a long period of time so that a treatment is actually a cure and not just a Band-Aid, right? What we see with a lot of successful... Um, and I'm using air quotes, but you can't see me <laughs> what a lot of successful recidivism programs um, have is that you'll see like there's a lot of selection bias. Right. So some programs will uh, prohibit people convicted of certain offenses from participating. Some programs require um, uh, uh, inmates to affirmatively apply for participation. Right. So in both of those cases, you're dealing with a subset of the population that may not pose the same kind of risk as a sort of general average um, prisoner. But, you know, we also see a reversion to the mean over time, right? So, you know, maybe the recidivism rate goes down uh, in a 12-month observation period or a 24-month observation period. But after that, we start to see that it, it takes back up. And, you know, we can't obviously keep people in these programs in perpetuity. Um, and, you know, with a, uh, an incarcerated population of about 1.9 million people now, um, it's not at all clear that we have the resources to scale the programs that do show the most promise across that population in a way that can reliably produce good results. One of the things that I do think we can do with prisons, though, to make them less criminogenic, less likely to produce, you know, people who are, are going to come out and recidivate at higher rates is to make them safer and to make them nicer. And, you know, again, this is, a, this is an area that calls for investment. Um, you know, uh, 
I, I don't, I'm not a retributivist at heart with a lot of this. Like, I, I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that, you know, uh, a prison stint should be miserable, that it should be gross and dirty and dangerous. Uh, you know, I am all for making the experience of incarceration as um, nice and, and minimizing the trauma, you know, to the extent that we can. And one way to do that is to reduce overcrowding. And that requires a buildup of carceral capacity. I would love to see prisons experiment with settings in which, you know, you're not going out to yard with 400 other inmates, but rather, you know, you're you're going to be living in a cell by yourself on a tier with maybe, you know, five to 10 other people. And that's all that those are the only people you're going to interact with, you know, for the time that you're there. But again, that requires us to spread the population out uh, across facilities that, that don't exist right now. Um you know, I think there are ways to design prisons to make them more secure. I think there are ways that we can be more strategic in terms of the housing decisions we make to minimize the risk of conflict and to minimize the risk of, you know, contraband passing, et cetera. Um, but all of that costs money. Um, and I think what we've done over the last several decades in the United States is that we've crowded out through maybe some misguided social spending programs, the money that we could otherwise spend on doing core government functions much better than we currently do them. Mm -hmm. That's a, that is such a good point. <laughs> the, the book is called criminal injustice. What the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most. Raphael Mangual, thank you so much for joining us on Federalist Radio Hour. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. Interesting and important topic. Uh, we're feeling it, especially in, in big cities, but a lot of rural areas are as well. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.